Hello and welcome. This is Emma Watkins and you are listening to Forgotten Convicts. So this episode will look at the changing system of aged and invalid pauper care in Van Diemen's land, really up until the turn of the century. So moving from the 19th to the 20th century. And changing beliefs about this population will need to be explored in an attempt to understand changing practices, because how this population were perceived inevitably influenced how practices developed. And also, as we know, Van Diemen's Land had a very unique penal history. And this affected how the system of dealing with paupers and invalids developed. So we'll be looking at that. And this discussion will begin as well with exploring how the Tasmanian system, formerly Van Diemen's Land, developed in relation to or in comparison to mainland Australia and the British system. So essentially, given um, Van Diemen's Land's unique penal history, how did the development of invalid and pauper welfare differ to mainland Australia, which had different histories, and the British system? It has certainly been argued that colonists rejected the British poor law system, so that in place in England and Wales. And the poor laws were, for those of you who are unaware, essentially a system of poor relief developed in England and Wales. Scotland had a slightly different system. So it developed in England and Wales out of the codification from 16th century laws. So it's not one regulation, it's made up of all these different laws. And the system continued until the modern welfare state emerged really after the Second World War. And there were changes over time, obviously. But colonial elites thought the poor law stopped the working classes working hard and caused dependence on um, government aid, whereas the working classes viewed the poor law with fear and contempt. So really, those of all classes um, rejected the British poor law system in principle. And because of this, there was this general belief in Australia that they didn't have a poor law system. They saw themselves as having rejected it. However, this was not entirely the case throughout Australia, but particularly for Tasmania, where government subsidies were common for those in need. There are many similarities in how the colonies dealt with the problem of the poor, but there were differences as well. So thinking about mainland Australia, then South South Australia was the closest to the poor law model back home in England and Wales, where private charities worked very closely with the government. And similarly, Tasmania also saw the colonial government play a very big role in poor relief. And this was because there were few charities to take this responsibility on. And so the welfare system that had developed in Tasmania by the mid-19th century was one which was initiated by Governor Arthur in the late 1820s, early 1830s. And it was born out of the convict system. And aged care in particular had become almost exclusively a government concern. And the main focus was institutional confinement. So Tasmanian outdoor relief didn't develop to the extent of other Australian states. And the limited outdoor relief that Tasmania did have was mainly reserved for families with young children or absentee fathers. Where the aged poor received outdoor aid, which did happen, but generally not very often, it was generally in rural areas where institutional infrastructure didn't exist. So 
outdoor aid was primarily aimed at what were termed as the respectable poor. And this is a category that pauper emancipists, which we've been talking about in the series of podcasts, pauper emancipists didn't belong to this respectable poor class. They were positioned as the undeserving. And just as England and Wales had private and church organisations who aided in poor relief, so took part in aiding for the poor of different, different categories, so did Australia. But as already noted, Australian enterprise relied more heavily on state assistance. Convicts, the aged poor and the invalids all really relied on the crown because of the slow development of charitable institutions in, in a developing colony. In Tasmania, the voluntary sector did not really emerge until the 1850s. And that is not to say they didn't exist before this. So, for example, the Benevolent Society of Hobart ran from 1832 and the Launceston Benevolent Society ran from 1834. However, even when they were in operation, they were heavily subsidised by the government. And just as there were few charities, as we said, there were also very few churches to provide support for the poor as well. So consequently, government intervention was required. Another important factor is the population that existed in Van Diemen's land and what that meant for how different subgroups of the population were viewed. And in the early days of Van Diemen's Land, there was a certain amount of tolerance towards pauper emancipists. After all, 46% of the Tasmanian population were convicts, and many others were emancipists themselves, so former convicts. And of the free settlers, many were still establishing themselves. So they were still struggling to get a foothold in their new home. And because of this, there was very little difference between the destitute then and the settler. And many relied on all different classes on government stores because, being immigrants, they didn't have an extended social support network to rely on in their new home. This provided, in the early days then, a commonality of experience, if you will. And one historian, Brown, has argued that it was only as the colony became increasingly stable that, quote, objects of charity became increasingly visible and decreasingly tolerated. So the more visible they became as the colony stabilised, the more they were positioned as problematic. So back in the 1831 Immigration Committee then, this committee was more concerned with the practice of British poor law authorities shipping in poor labourers and, and, and their families than they were concerned with pauper emancipists. And this was because the latter were viewed as having served the colony to some extent through their penal labour. However, increasingly structural factors, including the effects of the convict system, were ignored in line with these middle class ideologies of individualism. So having to work and take care of yourself, not relying on the state, pulling yourself up. But the more visible the population came, the more contemporaries wished to control this population. So as pauper emancipists were positioned as more problematic, the response was the wish to control them. And indeed, Piper, a historian who works in this area, has pointed out that charitable institutions were not established out of humanitarian concerns, but rather it was as, quote, a means to restrict the movement of a particular subgroup of the undeserving poor and to control their social interaction. So it was all about control. 
And invalid paupers were perceived then as a criminal class. And convicts and invalids, the aged poor, were associated with one another. They were inextricably linked. Now, as we've said, the poor law did not strictly operate in the colonies. But a principle of less eligibility, which characterised the poor law, did operate in the colonies. So, for example, the 1871 Royal Commission into Charitable Institutions denounced as, quote, pernicious any attempt to make institutions for the relief of pauperism more attractive than the home which the honest, self-denying workman can hope to secure for himself in old age by the observance of habits of temperance and economy. And this really points to the idea that any aid or support or institutional care which um, invalid, pauper, the aged poor were going to need had to be worse than what they could earn by themselves and that kind of less eligibility. And also administrators didn't want to see what they saw as respectable poor in these depots, these charitable institutions. And this is largely built on the idea of how the poor were viewed. So Australian philanthropists, um, as well as at home as well in England and Wales, they commonly believed that the poor became so because of drink and immorality. So it was their fault. And this goes back to this idea of individualism. However, this moral judgment wasn't universal and it did change over time. So it wasn't a complete denunciation by everybody. So, for example, in the 1839 Hobart Town Society for the Relief of the Distresses Poor, they appealed for funds for the helpless and suffering poor whose distress was consequent upon the present high price of provisions. So there they're acknowledging that they were poor not because of their own vices, but because of the high prices of provision. So it was a structural issue, not about individualism. However, as anti-transportation sentiment built, so this movement against um, Van Diemen's Land being a penal colony and accepting convicts from Australia, as this sentiment built, pauper emancipists were brought further to the attention of the public. And they were raised as one of the problems of this penal system, of continuing to accept convicts. So, for example, the Launceston Examiner, a newspaper, in 1847 stated that poor relief levied upon the colonists to sustain the feeble, decrepit and disease sent out as probationers to the island. And so the point here is that essentially a discussion of charitable relief for this population rarely took place without highlighting the pauper emancipist burden on the colony. And this was partly driven by the home government slowly weaning Van Diemen's land financially from around 1836, so giving them less funding over time. Essentially, the imperial government would only pay for those with a convict status. There were many attempts to try and extend the population for which the imperial authorities would take financial responsibility for by the colonial authorities. However, despite some concessions, they didn't go as far as colonial authorities wanted or in their eyes needed. And in response, 
the colonial government then tightened up funds and withdrew almost completely from provision of out and indoor relief for populations in need, including pauper emancipists. By 1858, a joint committee published a report on charitable institutions, and they were essentially investigating the state and sufficiency of government-funded aid. And the report acknowledged that charity was funded through a variety of means, but that infirmaries, so institutional accommodation for the aged and infirm, both in Hobart and Port Arthur, were still vested in the imperial government. And the report was arguing that since they had formed a responsible government, so Tasmania was now independent, that it was now Tasmania's duty to provide for the destitute and it recommended accommodation, so further institutional care for the infirm and aged, both in the north and south of Tasmania. And institutionalization of this particular population was called for because of this persistent ideological belief that helping needy paupers created more paupers. So giving them outdoor aid where they could live in comfort in their own homes was rejected. And rather, that was only kept for particular kinds of poor. And instead, pauper emancipists were kind of destined for this institutional care. So essentially, discrimination in the use of out and indoor aid was called for. By the 1866 committee, it was acknowledged that no voluntary organisation could operate on a sufficient scale without government aid. So essentially, the voluntary and the government aid were entangled together. And the government provided the bulk of its services and funded 50% of voluntary agency, whether they liked it or not. And as well as economic ramifications of all these movements and fighting over who was responsible for this population, the visibility and the disapprobation of pauper emancipists increased because of it and this was reflected in how they were treated. So the regulations imposed on pauper emancipists and we've touched on this in previous episodes but it's important to highlight this. The regulations imposed on what were termed inmates in the reports reflected those imposed within actual penal establishments for those whose status were or rather was convict. So the difference between a convict and a pauper emancipist, as Piper points out, was slender if non-existent. And the latter were treated as if they were convicts. So pauper emancipists were treated as if they were convicts. And the fact that many paupers were in fact former convicts, they were pauper emancipists, though not exclusively, but the majority, only reinforced this connection between pauperism and criminality. And this was reflected in the conduct of the government, in the administration, and in benevolent societies as well throughout the latter half of the 19th century. So this influenced how they treated pauper emancipists, and paupers more broadly as well. By the mid-1870s, discipline became even tighter. So as the convict system was dismantling, the treatment of pauper emancipists became tighter and more controlling and more penal-like. There were essentially decreasing freedoms for this population. And these regulations that were brought in, which decreased their freedoms, demonstrates a belief that the proper location for the pauper was in supervised institutional environments. They needed to be controlled then. So as alluded to earlier, those who were placed within the restrictions of the pauper establishment, so within the institutional environment, as opposed to being allowed the freedoms associated with outdoor aid, were generally former convicts. 
And it's been argued that this move from imperial to colonial society led to a structural change in which self-control and hard work were praised. So not conforming to this middle-class ideology meant the possibility of reincarceration, either within the penal system or within the pauper system. And while the charitable institutions were not technically prisons, they were, as we've said, very penal in nature. And they, they were meant to stand as a deterrent and the treatment then was deliberately harsh because of this. So from 1856 to 1890, the general opinion of the middle classes was that idleness and intemperance was the cause of poverty rather than economic and social conditions or any effect that the penal system and living within it might have had on these individuals. And because of this, giving aid to the aged poor would then discourage the poor classes from saving and preparing for old age or sickness. However, it has to be noted that not all middle classes deemed and criminalised invalids. There were opposing views throughout the century. There's never one, while there might be a general consensus, there's never one opinion over time. So there were opposing views throughout the century. For example, in responding to the invalid crisis of the 1850s and 60s, the use of Port Arthur, a notorious penal settlement, as an invalid depot was described as, quote, too harsh an imposition on invalids, particularly given its penal function. However, still the Hobart Society in 1885 stated that although poverty is not a crime, it is certainly not a virtue to be cultivated. So the overwhelming voice was that the poor needed to be controlled, particularly pauper emancipists. It was only really moving into the 1890s that the government began to acknowledge that it was responsible for the entirety of the population, regardless of moral values. Meanwhile, the Hobart Benevolent Society, though, saw a very clear distinction between the deserving and the undeserving poor, so this classification system which we've seen elsewhere. And they sought to control the behaviour of the poor through these classifications. In trying to work with them, the government had to stress that quote, the need to exercise a more liberal approach if it was to be given the responsibility for administering public funds. So the government believed that the Hobart Benevolent Society were being too discerning in who they gave aid to. So evidently then, the views were very complex and changeable. But what remains a theme throughout this is that poverty and convictism remained associated with one another and continued to affect decisions. Beginning with then a very ad hoc system in the early days of the Vandemonian colony, so where a house in Hobart was used, for example, and later a ward of a hospital, the welfare system for pauper emancipists then emerged out of the convict system. So the infrastructure of the convict system was increasingly used as the convict system dismantled. And so as the, the penal colony was moving away from being a penal colony, essentially, the pauper system became increasingly penal, like using the same infrastructure, using the same superintendents and staff and similar regulations. So the populations within them were further controlled. And even with wider societal views changing, changing in terms of a more humanitarian view of the poor, the penal-like institutions and the control of this population continued. So deinstitutionalization was not immediate and 
real change in the care for the aged didn't really take place until the implementation of the pension. And what we'll be looking at in the next um, podcast episode and associated blog will be the ending of or changing form of these charitable institutions at the turn of the century. Thank you very much for listening.